Our sermon today is taken from Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 24. Here is the word of God. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground the Lord God had formed, every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God has taken from the man, he made into a woman, and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Thus says the Lord. So today we'll be beginning our series on marriage. And I think in order to understand the true meaning of marriage, as it was originally intended by God, a proper understanding of Genesis chapter 2 will be necessary. The challenge we face today, however, is to distinguish the Bible's view of marriage from that of our culture. You see, our culture has a very low and unbiblical view of marriage. And there are people today who are desperately trying to redefine marriage to fit their own political and social agendas. And divorce has become so commonplace in our world that hardly anyone considers it to be a tragedy anymore. As Christians, though, we must remember that marriage is a part of the created order because marriage was instituted by God himself at creation, before the fall of Adam, before there was ever any sin in the world. And therefore, marriage exists so that through it, human beings may serve, honor, and glorify God. Most importantly, the marital union itself is patterned after the very same union that Christ has with his church. And so, as believers who have been redeemed from sin, marriage points us to the hope that we have as the body of Christ, of his returning for us someday, to claim us as his bride. And this makes marriage itself an earthly picture of our future redemption. So according to the Bible, marriage is designed to express more than just the love that human beings have for one another as spouses, but it also paints a picture for us of the immeasurable love that Christ has for us as his church. And so as Christians, it's important that we understand God's original intention for marriage so that we can commit ourselves as best as possible to fulfilling it. And brothers and sisters, I really believe that apart from trusting Christ, the decision we make to get married is one of the most important decisions that we will ever make in our lives. Now, unfortunately, I've met a lot of people whose marriages have not turned out well, partly because they have not chosen their marriage partners wisely. And I'm not trying to make you feel bad if you're in a bad marriage, but what I would like is for those who have been married and those who are getting married and those who will someday be married in the future, I would like for them to take this commitment seriously. So 
So my goal today is to help us to, to feel the wonder of marriage, of God's purpose for marriage between a man and a woman, and see that it's far more glorious than anything that is taught and embraced in our culture today. So we'll begin this morning by going all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. And we'll examine our passage today under three headings. Three headings. The incomplete man, verses 18 through 20. The glorious woman, verses 21 and 22. And the mystery of marriage, verses 23 and 24. The incomplete man, the glorious woman, and the mystery of marriage. But first, the incomplete man. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man be alone. Now, on the sixth day of creation, God created Adam from the dust of the ground and placed him in the Garden of Eden. Now, at this point, Adam was all alone. He was incomplete and therefore not whole. When God saw this, he proclaimed that it was not good that the man be alone. Now, what does it mean for us that Adam was alone? What is the text trying to tell us? Well, in the Hebrew, the word alone can be translated as a kind of separation. So strictly speaking, the text reads something like this. It is not good for man to be in his separation. In other words, by himself, Adam was living as a man who was separated from himself. He was living as someone who was separated from someone who belonged to him, from someone who was like him. Something was lacking. He was incomplete and therefore not whole. And so, in God's very own estimation, the condition that Adam found himself in was not good. And God knew it. And I believe, I really believe, that Adam himself could probably sense this as well. So in order to cause Adam to experience the sense of separation more, more clearly, to, in order to cause him to feel this sense of incompleteness more clearly, God intentionally brought the animals to him and had him name each and every pair. You see, by doing this, Adam would become more aware that something was lacking within himself. When he saw that the various species of animals were equipped with a mate or a companion, he began to sense a feeling of his loneliness. In his inner being, he perhaps wondered to himself, is there a companion found for me? Now, of course, he had no knowledge as to the exact nature and character of what a companion for him would be like. But I, uh, he obviously realized that something was missing. And most of us can probably relate to Adam at this point, can't we? Because I think there comes a point in our lives when we, we become conscious of our need for companionship as well. Our need for intimacy with another person. Our need for intimacy with someone who is like us. Someone who shares the same thoughts, goals, desires, and aspirations that we do. Perhaps some of you listening today are not yet married and are presently experiencing this desire for companionship. You like to get married. You like a husband or a wife. Well, you can be comforted in the fact that Adam himself experienced this same longing as well. God made him feel it. You see, sometimes I think if we're not careful, we can gloss over the fact that Adam himself struggled with loneliness when we read his story. And we act like he completely bypassed the personal struggles that we all deal with when it comes to dating, as if God just gifted him with a wife. We say Adam had it easy. He didn't experience any of the same preparation or struggle that we do. But according to the text, it's not quite true. Adam was first alone. 
he experienced aloneness. Adam was created first and spent an unspecified amount of time alone with God before Eve ever came on the scene. Why? We're not told. We can only speculate. But it was probably to establish the fact that there was to be a certain hierarchy of accountability within the marriage relationship. The man, Adam, was to be head of the family unit. And with that, he bore the most responsibility before God for his very own actions and also for the actions of those in his household. And this certainly doesn't mean that women are not equal to, to men because they're human beings created in the image of God. Adam was not more important than Eve. They were both equal in status before God. But they each had different roles and responsibilities to play within the marriage relationship. And Adam's role as man was to be head of the household. And so Adam's time alone with God was probably to deepen his fellowship with God, that he might be better prepared to fulfill his role as man in the marriage. So if you're single today, don't be surprised if there's a, if there's a certain amount of time that passes before you find a spouse a certain amount of time that you feel alone or incomplete, where you feel as though God is unconcerned for your desire for a spouse, or you wonder whether or not it's God's will for you to even be married at all. Don't be surprised, because this time is very important for you. God loves you, and he's using this time to deepen your relationship with him in order to better prepare you for marriage. He's preparing you to love and appreciate the wonderful gift of a life's partner, even more so when it happens, as you realize that everything that you have, you receive from God, the incomplete man. And our second point is the glorious woman. Look at verses 21 and 22 with me. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed it up in its place, flesh. And the rib that the Lord had taken out of the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. You see, after God created the world and pronounced that everything was good, he looked around and saw that there was still something missing. There was no woman in it. So after Adam's time of preparation was complete, God made him fall into a deep sleep. And then he took one of his ribs and created a woman. So we can clearly see that God himself performed the very first surgical procedure in human history. And this operation was performed out of love and concern for all of us, out of love and concern for you and for me. Why? Because that operation would ultimately fulfill the need that all of us have for companionship. It was done out of love. Commenting on this, uh, Pastor Steve Cole says, the woman is the missing part of man just as a jigsaw puzzle is incomplete. If half the pieces are missing, so man is incomplete without his wife. God designed it so that the man needs the woman and the woman needs the man. Both are equal in persons, yet have distinct roles to fulfill in marriage. You see, God knew exactly what Adam needed. And God also knows what you and I need as well. He loves you and wants to fulfill your desire for companionship. And this is not to say that you are not complete as a person if you are married or that there's something wrong with you if you choose not to be married. Remember, the Apostle Paul himself 
was not married. He chose not to be. He chose instead to dedicate his life to the, to the work of the kingdom. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I do believe that overall, the Bible encourages Christians to pursue marriage if possible. The only requirement being that we marry another believer. As Paul says, if you marry, marry in the Lord. And notice that in the creation, God bestows upon the woman the very same honor and dignity that he bestowed upon the man. Because in Genesis chapter 1, we see that God created both of them in his very own image, male and female. And notice that the glory of the woman can be seen in the very manner that she was created. You see, God didn't merely speak her into existence by the power of his word. No, he could have done that, right? But he actually took extra special care when he created the woman by forming her and shaping her body with his very own hands. So he literally built or fashioned the woman from Adam's rib so that she might be the perfect companion for Adam. In other words, there was a certain intentionality to the creation of woman. Matthew Henry, commenting on the glory of woman, puts it like this. The woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arms to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved by him. Now, tragically, throughout history, the dignity and value of women has been trampled upon. Sometimes they've been marginalized in society, and sadly, even sometimes within the church. But it's important to remember that the woman was created by God as a glorious creature, in and of herself, who was just as equal in value as the man. She had only a different role to play in the relationship. Nor is it fair to say that uh, the woman finds her value strictly in the fact that she bears children, right? You see, women don't exist solely for the purpose of child rearing. Listen to what Derek Kidner says about this subject. The woman is presented wholly as man's partner and counterpart. Nothing is said of her childbearing. She has value for herself alone. And that's very important today when families face infertility because fertility does not make a woman valuable to her husband in and of itself. She, in and of herself, is valuable to her husband regardless of whatever procreative blessings the Lord showers on that family. And we pray for many, for all. And yet, child rearing is not the only qualification that makes her valuable. A woman's value is not to be found solely in child rearing. Now, if that's true, which I certainly believe that it is, then just what is it that makes a woman valuable? And how is that tied to her role in marriage? Well, the end of verse 18 tells us exactly where her value lies. There God says, I will make a helper fit or suitable for him. Now, the fact that the woman is referred to as a helper in no way detracts from her value as a person because the term helper has reference to her specific role in marriage and not to her worth or value as a person in relation to the man. One commentator put it this way, a helper in the Old Testament is not a subordinate, but one who may be equal or sometimes even a superior to the one who is being helped. In fact, 
God himself is called a helper to human beings in the Psalms. Similarly, Matt Chandler also says, God being called a helper throughout the scripture actually brings honor to the position of helper. Since God has been called the helper, a helper cannot be inherently inferior. So if the woman has been made a helper fit for the man, a woman being the helper to the man cannot mean that she's inferior in any way, end quote. Now, if that's true, then just what exactly does the term helper imply about the woman in our passage today? Well, the term helper in the Bible implies someone who is suitable for the task, more like an ideal partner, not a maid or an assistant, but a companion who perfectly corresponded to the man. Someone who shares the very same nature that the man does with the very same capacity for a relationship with God. In other words, the woman in and of herself is an appropriate match for the man. Eve was not created above or below Adam, but Eve was created in order to complement Adam. And all the animals that Adam named each had his own companion. And so Adam also was given a fitting companion by God himself. By himself, Adam was alone and incomplete, but Eve was just right for him. Because with the creation of Eve, Adam finally experienced the joy and love of another person. He had a companion who was just like himself. Like a tailor-made suit, Eve was perfectly fitted to meet all of Adam's needs. She was glorious in and of herself, supplying what was lacking in the man in order that she might complete him and make him whole, the glorious woman. And our third point is the mystery of marriage. Look at the end of verse 22. And God brought her to the man. Now this verse introduces us to the very first wedding ceremony in human history. And it was administered by God himself. And notice that God is the one who brought the woman to the man that he created in order to give her away to her husband. Listen to this beautiful statement by Gerhard von Rath speaking about God bringing Eve to Adam. Listen to how he put it. God himself is like a father of the bride leading the woman to the man. You get that? God himself acts like a father of the bride leading the woman to the man. You see, God himself is presiding over the very first wedding ceremony and modeling for us as human beings by showing us the way it's to be carried out throughout generations. And so clearly, we can see that marriage is an institution of God for men and women. And the very first marriage from beginning to end was orchestrated and presided over by God as a perpetual institution for all people for all time. And therefore, marriage itself is a blessing. You know, for those of you who are married, did you ever imagine that you would be repeating the actual same ceremony that Adam and Eve uh, performed? the actual uh, ceremony that they had, God himself performed it. And all of you who are not yet married, that's exactly what you'll be doing when you get married. You'll be repeating the actual ceremony that was performed for Adam and Eve by God himself. But there's an even more important meaning to marriage than just the fact that it meets our need for companionship. You see, God designed marriage for an even greater purpose. Look at verses 23 and 24. Then the man said, 
This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You see what this passage is telling us is that there's a unique bond, a unique kind of intimacy within marriage that can only be experienced in the bond and union of marriage. In the marriage relationship, the woman actually becomes a part of the man, just as we, the, the church, become a part of the body of Christ. And notice that the marriage bond itself takes precedent over the parent-child relationship as well, as a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife. Now, what does this mean? Well, the parent-child relationship is actually the closest bond that you could ever have on earth because it ties you together with your parents by blood. But God's word implies that marriage is even a greater bond in its closeness and intimacy than the relationship that children share with their parents by blood. And this is amazing because as a man and a woman share the same flesh and blood as their biological parents, whereas there are no blood ties at all between a man and his wife. And yet in marriage, they are pronounced one flesh by God. Now, what does this picture for us? Think about it for a moment. What does this picture for us? I think it's interesting that once we believe the Bible, we also become united to the body of Christ and we become spiritually one flesh with the church of Christ by faith. And the relationship that we have with Jesus is closer in intimacy than any biological relationship that we have on earth, including that of our spouse. This is why Jesus could say to those in his day, whoever does the will of my God, he is my brother, my sister, and my mother. Are you beginning to see that marriage on earth is not an end in and of itself, but a means of understanding and experiencing a deeper relationship with God through our redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ? See, the love and the intimacy, the joy, the fellowship, the compassion, the knowledge and understanding that each spouse has for one another is just a microscopic picture of our relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we experience all these emotions with our spouse, it's a small picture of our future experience of these same emotions through the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven. And so marriage itself is an earthly symbol of a heavenly reality of the relationship that exists between Jesus Christ and the church. But that's not all, because Ephesians chapter 5 also tells us that marriage itself is a great mystery that refers to Christ and the church. Now, what does Paul mean by mystery? We usually think of a mystery as something that is undecipherable, right? Something that we cannot figure out on our own. In scripture, however, the term mystery has a very different meaning. In the Bible, a mystery refers to the eternal plan of God that was hidden in the Old Testament that is now revealed in Christ in the New Testament. Matthew 13, 11, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Ephesians 1, 9, He made known to us the mystery of his will. So a mystery in the Bible has reference to salvation of God, which is revealed in the gospel. So the marriage union corresponds to the union that Christ has with his church. The church is the bride of Christ. And this union between the, 
Christ and the church is so very intimate that the two actually become one flesh, one body. This is why when Saul was persecuted in the church in the book of Acts, Jesus could say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The church is me. It is one in flesh with me. You see, the church is mysteriously united to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church. And we, as church members, are all members of his body. In a very real sense, the two are one flesh. And knowing this truth should give us a very high estimation for the institution of marriage itself, because marriage itself is a very sacred institution. It's sacred in the sense that it's greater than any biological relationship that we could experience on earth. And it's also sacred in the sense that it pictures the bond and the union that Christ has with the church. And so as Christians, our marriages are meant to bring glory to God, to the watching world. We must therefore model the same love and selflessness that Christ displayed to each and every last one of us as his bride, the church. And so as men, we should regularly ask ourselves, are we loving our wives as Christ loved the church? And as women, you should regularly ask yourselves, are you kindly submitting to your husbands as Christ submitted himself for the salvation of the church? You see, the ultimate goal for Christians is that our marriages on earth will be an accurate reflection of the ultimately heavenly marriage between the Lord Jesus Christ the bridegroom, and the church, who is his bride. And this is the true mystery and meaning of marriage. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of marriage, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you have blessed us, Lord, uh, to understand today, O oh Lord, the meaning and institution of marriage. We thank that you that you care about our hearts, about our loneliness, about our isolation, and you provided us, Lord, with the opportunity to feel true companionship, the companionship that we will one day feel in the presence of Christ in heaven. Thank you, Father. I pray that you would bless this message to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.